in Titus. We've entitled this morning's message simply, God Cannot Lie. We are still in the salutation of the book. We are in its beginning. We have been introduced to the writer of the book, that is the Apostle Paul. And as I have outlined for you as we studied, started to study the book together, Paul is focusing in on the character of God and the person of God with Titus right in the beginning so that Titus's attention, I think, would go there because of the task that he will be reminded of as we continue to expound the passages before us. We noted uh, first in verse 1, in dealing with the character of God, that Paul focused on God's sovereignty. He focused on God's sovereignty in the life of the Apostle Paul, in that Paul, having been a non-believer, having been a religious leader, having been a persecutor of the church, nevertheless, in God's perfect timing, he called Paul forth to be a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. All of that under the sovereignty of God. He not only called him to that position, but for the purpose, we learned in verse 1, of faith, that is salvation, and knowledge of the truth, according to godliness, we said the sanctification of the believer. We also learn the sovereignty of God, not just in relationship to Paul, but in last week's message, we learned it in relationship to election itself. Because we noticed in the verse one, it says, the, those chosen of God. Paul preached the gospel so that those who were chosen by God, those who would become believers, would hear the gospel and through that process come to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So the first thing that he dwelt, with, uh, dwelt on was the sovereignty of God. Now as he continues in the character of God, we come to the second point, and that is that he is a God that cannot lie. Would you keep your finger in Titus for just a moment? Turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. This is a passage well known to believers. And in Romans chapter 1, I wanted to go there because in your outline you see in the notes that God cannot lie, and that is in contrast to the fact that he's not like man. And in Romans chapter 1, I would like to get down to verse 21. It says, for even though they knew God, that is men, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish hearts, a foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And 23 is the focus. And exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Now, what does that have in relationship to what Titus is saying? Everything because man tries to bring God down to our level. And if we think about it, even yourselves from time to time, in trying to imagine what God's like, it's hard not to imagine God uh, having two arms and two legs and looking like we look and thinking like we think and acting like we think. And that is the way that we would envision God 
had it not been for the word of God and it had not been for the revelation of God. Man's tendency is to make God to be a person like us. And that is not true, and especially in this area. And we need to realize that even in trusting on the promises of God, those things that we sing about, and I will talk about this morning. Our God cannot lie. He is not like man. Turn with me to Numbers chapter 23 and verse 19. Numbers 23, in the beginning of your Bible. Numbers 23, verse 19. Very simply, in the context of actually Balaam's prophecies here, we see that he says in verse 19, God is not a man that he should lie. Men lie, God doesn't. Nor a son of man that he should repent. He has said, and will he not do it? The answer is yes. And he has spoken, and will he not make it good? And again, it's a rhetorical question. The answer is yes, but you notice the contrast. God is not man. We can't make God like man. He is unlike us. Go with me to Psalm 58. Psalm 58. I think important for us to see this one. In Psalm 58, I want you to look at verse 3. It says, the wicked are estranged from the womb, and watch the end of the verse. These who speak lies go astray from birth. It is from the womb, is what it very clearly is pointing out to us there. Man, basically, is a liar right from birth. That is our nature. Now, you might say, well, I don't lie. You should do. We all do, and even in our imaginations and so forth. And we need to get out of our thinking that God is anything like us. We, from our birth, we are liars. Not only that, the next thing I want you to see, turn with me to John chapter 8, because this is going to lend itself to our understanding of our context. John chapter 8. Not only is God unlike us, he is unlike Satan, obviously, Pastor Dan. Yeah, but there's something that's important here. In John chapter 8... And verse 44, what does it say? It says, you, pointing, pointing to the religious leaders there that the Lord was speaking to, are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. Now catch this. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. Why? Because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, or from his own being, or from his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. You see, as we look to God, we need to understand that God is not like man, we are liars. Neither is he like Satan. And that helps us. Now go back to Titus chapter 1. Because back in Titus chapter 1, and in verse 2, I will get to the first part of the verse in a minute when it says, in the hope of eternal life, it says, which God who cannot lie. In other words, God is without falsehood. That is his nature. Like it is na the nature of Satan to lie. 
That's part of his being. God's character, God's nature, God's personhood, if you will, is that it is in truth. He is truth. The Lord himself is truth. And we see that God promises and we can count on it. And that is very important for us to see that his character, unlike our character or the character of Satan, ours is towards sin, Satan is towards lying. Our God and his character is in truth. That's his essence. Now that is also important since you're in Titus chapter 1 to understand why Paul opened up with this. If you turn with me for just a second to the Cretans, you find out that they are liars uh, from the beginning. Um, I didn't mark the verse down, but I know it's in here. Cretans are liars is in chapter 1, verse 12 and 13, I think it is. 12, yeah, thank you. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And you can look at the verse 13. And the point is, Paul is opening up with Titus focusing in. Why? He was in, and we will study that in chapter 1, verse 12 later. He was on an island of Crete, and he was in an environment in which the people's reputation was, when they talked about Crete, they talked about liars. And he wanted Titus to get right away focused in on the fact that God is sovereign, God chose Paul, God used Paul, God chooses believers, God is in the process of bringing people to salvation, and our God is not like the Cretans. He cannot lie. That is the character. And you say, why is that important? Well, first of all, it's important in that we need to understand it in its context. It brings hope. The fact that God doesn't lie brings hope. And you see that in verse 2, in the hope of eternal life. Paul preached the gospel. Paul preached the truth with something in view. That is the preposition epi that's used here. And first of all, in the context, is in relationship to what Paul preached when it says, in the hope of eternal life. In other words, he had a calling to preach the gospel for faith. He had a calling to teach the truth. And it wasn't an aimless calling. It wasn't just that he went about preaching this without any hope of anything happening. No, it wasn't aimless. It was with purpose. And the purpose was the focus of the hope of eternal life. It's the same way that this term is used in another familiar passage. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 2, just for a moment. Ephesians chapter 2. And you'll see what I'm saying. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, often quoted. It says, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus... For, there's a purpose of it. it. There's a goal in it. What is it? Good works. So we are created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. God didn't just save us and leave us here without any purpose. He left us here with an objective, and that is that good works would be produced out of the life. And I came to this one early on because as we progressed through the book of Titus, you will see that there is a great place for good works in the believer's life. God chose us. God called us to salvation. Yes, we are a workmanship in Christ, but we're created for the purpose of good works, of bringing glory to him 
through that by walking in those works. And it is in that same vein that that preposition, I believe, is used in chapter 1 of Titus when he says, in the hope, there is a goal. In the hope of what? Eternal life. This hope is not wishful thinking. Paul is saying that he preached truth, he preached the gospel, he desired to see them walking in godliness, and the reason he preached the gospel had an objective, and that was the hope of eternal life. It wasn't an uncertainty. Not at all. Rather, it was certain because of the character of God. What is it? That he doesn't lie. That is the way that the context goes. Paul continued to preach, knowing that the chosen of God would, be hurt, would hear it and would get saved, and he had in view the hope of eternal life because the promise came from God himself, and he cannot lie. He knew that eternal life, knowing God, being with God forever, that's what eternal life is. It's knowing him. It's knowing his son, Jesus Christ, and being with him forever. What about us? That is our hope. Christ is our hope. Turn in Titus to chapter 3. You'll see this. Chapter 3. <coughs> Excuse me. Verse 7. Verse 7. It says, So that being justified by his grace, we would be heirs according to the hope what? of eternal life. That's our hope. Our hope is the hope of eternal life. Paul preached the gospel, and he knew that there was the promise and the hope, not just, well, I hope I'll get there. No, but the certainty because of who it was based on. That is based on the promises of God. Our hope in eternal life is not just something that's wishful thinking. It is on the authority of the word of God. It is on the character of God himself. And that's what gave Paul boldness. And that's what ought to give us hope and boldness. It's the character of God. Now let's go to that responsive reading of yours. Go to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. Where we clearly see this. This great passage in Hebrews talks about not only how Abraham was assured, but the character of our God, beginning in verse 13. <clears throat> For when God made a, the promise to Abraham, watch, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. What did Abraham have to be based upon uh, the promises? Just the word of God. That was it. As Abraham had been born and coming out of the background that he came out of, when God said to him to be separated from his family and that he would make of him a great nation, what was the dependence and what was the hope that, that Abraham had? It was simply the authority of what God said. He swore by himself, saying, verse 14, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you and so having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves. We all do that. We take oaths. People go to court. They put their hand on the Bible. Or we say, I swear by this one. Or we swear by our genealogy, or our mothers, or our fathers. Why? We're looking to 
have people realize, if you can't rely on me, rely on that. What God says is there's no one greater. Rely on him. And Abraham saw that he could rely on the promise of God. For men swear by one greater, he says. In verse 17, in the same way, God desiring even more to show, watch this, to the heirs of the promise, not just to Abraham, but to you and I, he says, the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath. He not only gave us his word, but he swore by himself, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible, it is impossible for our God to lie, we have taken refuge we who, uh, who have taken refuge, excuse me, would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. There is application to us as heirs of the promise. God made a promise to Abraham. Did he fulfill it? Yes. And remember, he looked at the stars of heaven. And God said, look there, do you see that? That is what your seed will be like. And that's all Abraham had to go on, the word of God. Did it come to pass? Yes, and it's continuing to come to pass as people come to Christ, as the heirs of the promise come to Christ. And what are we saying? Abraham could rely on it. If you know the story of Abraham, you know that as he got older, even his wife and he looked and they believed God and said, well, maybe we misunderstood Try taking my handmaid. Maybe God, no, that's not the way I said it. It will be through your seed. It'll be through your wife. And he believed God. And even when they were past the age of having children, God's promise came true. And even when the son came and God said to Abraham, now offer him up. Well, he's the son I've been waiting for. Abraham, according to Hebrews, knew that God was able to even raise him from the dead. Why? He rested solely on the promise of God. And God had his son preserved. And now, through Abraham, back in chapter 12, I'm not going to turn there, Genesis verses 1 to 3, we have it, where all the nations would be blessed, the Gentiles as well, you and I, and we are blessed today. Why? Because of the promise given to Abraham. Yes. But why even deeper than that? Because of the character and nature of God. And what is that? He cannot lie. Our God cannot lie. When you and I read the word of God, do you believe what he says? Oftentimes in practice, we don't. We hear what it says. We look at what it says. I don't know. Can God really do that? Will he really do that? This is important for us, just as it was for Titus. Who are we relying on, Titus? We are relying on the character. I am preaching the gospel. I have been involved in my ministry to the chosen of God, to the faith, and to trusting the word because it has an objective. It is resting in the hope that is found in the word of God and the promises made long ago. Application. We can, we can rely on the promises of God. For what? Eternal life. How do you know you have eternal life? Often people ask that question. How do I know I have eternal life? How do you know? 
Simply put, someone said to me early on, I was a very new believer, and I was talking to somebody, and uh, they said, as typical when for people first come to know Christ, they said, are you saved? And I said, yes, in this particular case. Uh, there's another incident that I've relayed to many about when I first met someone I hadn't seen in a long time. But this was yes. I said, yes. I said, how do you know? I didn't know how to answer. Here was one of the biggest helps in my early Christian walk. You know what that person did? That person said, I'm going to show you how you know you're saved. I said, great. Give me your Bible. It's exact words. Gave him my Bible, opened it up to, John, to Romans chapter 10. What did it say? Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's all the person pointed me to. And I said, yeah, I did that. And they said, that's why you know you're saved, because God said it. I never forgot that. And if any of you are struggling with salvation, there it is. We are trusting in a God who cannot lie. And when he says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, he means what he says. He cannot lie. I can trust that. When he says in Titus chapter 2, go with me to Titus chapter 2 for a minute, and verse 13, we are looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. I can count on that. Is he really coming back? Yes. Why? He said so. And he cannot lie. Will there really be a resurrection from the dead? Look at our bodies are decaying day by day. We are struggling. We get discouraged. We're down. Will there really be a resurrection if the, the body just decays and even all the bones just turn to dust? Yes. Why? Because it's resting on the promise of God that all who are in the graves will come forth. End of discussion. You see why you need to rely on the word of God. Do I have the indwelling Holy Spirit? I can't see him. I don't know what he looks like. How do I know he's there? Maybe he's really not there. We know it because in the book of Ephesians, the very first chapter, he says he is God's down payment. We know it. All who have trust in Christ Jesus have been baptized by the Holy Spirit. He is in us. Why? Simply because God said so. How about James chapter 1? I won't turn you there. You're going through the trials of life, and you don't understand it. And God says, count it all joy. Are you kidding? But he says, knowing this, that it's perfecting your faith, and you're growing through those trials. Can I rely on that? Yes. I could go on the rest of the morning and into tonight, as you well know. My point is this. Our God cannot lie. We have eternal life because we're resting on the promises of God. We, as we walk with God, can rely if he's, when he says, if you do this, I will bless you. He will. If you do this, I will not only bl not bless you, you'll be punished. You will. We can trust our God. And Titus, in this opening letter to Titus, Paul says right away, not only is he sovereign, but we see it 
in the fact that our God cannot lie. And back in Titus chapter 1, you notice he says this promise was made long ages ago, our English Bible says. I think personally, while that's an okay translation, it would be a better translation to say in eternity past because that's really what it is. In eternity past, God cannot lie. When did he make this promise? Well, turn with me to the book of Ephesians just for a moment, chapter 1. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Just as he has chosen us, we've already dealt with that, in him, when? Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestinated us to the adoption of sons through Christ Jesus to himself according to the kind intention of his will. When? Before the foundation of the world. When were these promises made? Long ages ago, before the foundation of the world. God promised eternal life. God promised salvation through Jesus Christ. Notice now in Titus chapter 1, verse 3, but at the proper time... He says, manifested even his word in the proclamation which I was entrusted according to the commandment of our God and Savior. There's a lot there, but what I really want to get across to you is the timing of God. God's proper timing. It was perfect in Paul's life. Paul had grown up in a right family. Paul had served in a, in a capacity where he was a Pharisee. Paul had persecuted the church of God. Then on a Damascus road, he got struck down, came face to face with God, and that's when he came to salvation. No doubt in my mind that if Paul was anything like we are, he probably said to himself somewhere along the line, oh, if I had only gotten saved when I was four, how I could have been used. God's timing is perfect. His timing was perfect in Paul's life. His timing was perfect in Abraham's life. His timing was perfect in Titus's life. And his timing was perfect in your life and my life. We didn't get saved one minute too late. And if you're not saved, it's still in God's timing. And that's an encouragement. Our God cannot lie we have the hope of eternal life because he cannot lie as well. And even in the proper time did he manifest his word. It didn't come any too late. Christ didn't come any too late. The revelation of God's word didn't come any too late. Our salvation didn't come any too late. God's timing is absolutely perfect. He's got the whole picture in view. And as a side note, <coughs> excuse me, continue to pray for your unsaved relatives. If they get saved on death's bed, God's timing is perfect. If your children get saved when they're five years old, God's timing is perfect in that life. To summarize those verses, God's timing is perfect in election. It was before the foundation of the world. His timing is perfect in the methodology of salvation. It is by the preaching of the word. 
and his timing is perfect also when it is heard and when people come to salvation. His timing is perfect in sending forth disciples, in sending people forth with the gospel, whether young or whether old. His timing is always perfect. So God's sovereignty can be seen. God's character can be seen and that he cannot lie. And then also verse 4, and that he brings peace. Verse 4 says to Titus, my true child, a common, in a common faith, grace and peace from God, the Father, and Christ Jesus, our Savior. Here we find the recipient. In verse 1, we found the writer. Now we find the recipient, as we well knew, it is Titus. Titus probably, when he says, my true child in a common faith, I think there's definite application there that he was probably a fruit of Paul's ministry. We don't see that actual conversion in Scripture. But I think when he uses my true child, that's probably what he's referring to, that in speaking the gospel, Titus as well, as he came across the path, may have been one of the people that Paul had the privilege of leading to Christ. It's the common faith. Why? It's the only faith. The only one true faith that counts. Pastor Chris talked about and some of the songs we sang this morning had to do with walking by faith. Abraham believed God. What does that mean? You know, well, we got to go on faith. Yes, but it's not an aimless faith. He believed God. His faith was rooted in the person and character of God and what he said. Where is our faith? It is rooted not just in something we are hoping might be there, but it's in the person and the character of God. And our hope for eternal life, our hope for the judgment seat of Christ, our hope in reigning with him forever, our hope with being in the new heaven and earth is resting in the character and person of God. And in his perfect timing, he brought us to salvation. And it is only God that can bring peace. And yes, it's a common greeting that we find in the epistles as Paul writes, grace and peace from God. Why? It's the only place it can come. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified or declared righteous in a right position with God, how? By faith, notice, he says, we have peace with God. The peace is with God. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. While we talk of world peace, while there's talk of having peace, and always has been that talk. The only peace that can really satisfy the soul is the one that comes from God. Turn with me to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, most familiar passage again. I want you to see this. Isaiah 53. it up in verse 4. 
Speaking of the Messiah, speaking of in the context, the servant he's called, speaking of Jesus Christ, who we know is that servant, who is that Savior. Watch. Verse 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, afflicted. Verse 5. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. What is that talking about? When it talked about the chastening of our well-being, the chastening for our peace, that could be translated as well. It was for our peace that the Lord Jesus Christ bore our sins. How do we know that our sins are really forgiven, Pastor Dan? Well, it tells you in Colossians chapter 2, and I won't turn there, that he nailed them to the tree, that he took it out of the way, and he uses these words in Colossians 2. He's forgiven us all of our transgressions. There isn't anything that's too great for God to forgive. There aren't too many sins that we've created that God can't forgive, but they can only be forgiven in the person of Christ. How do we know that? Because of our God who cannot lie. Because our God and his word is what we rely on. We know we have forgiveness of sins because God said so. We know that that sacrifice of Jesus Christ that we just spoke about in Isaiah 53 is true for us and that it was satisfying to God because God said so. He was the mercy seat. So in this, the salutation back in Titus chapter 1, what we have in those first four verses, small little section to introduce. I believe we have a situation where Paul had left Titus, as we will see on the island of Crete. He hadn't finished his work. He was discouraged. He was in the midst of liars. He was in the midst of pressure not to walk with God and hadn't followed through. And while Paul could have turned around and said, Titus, just grow up. Wake up and do what you should be doing. His encouragement came in a different way in this epistle. It came by, in the introduction, turning his whole focus on who God is. <coughs> Excuse me. And what his character is like. So Titus might see that the one that you've trusted in Titus will get you through the difficulty will enable you for the task. It's the same thing that we need. We need to see that God is sovereign in his situations. So when things come up in our life that we didn't anticipate, we don't understand, we don't feel we have the courage to continue on, God is still sovereign and watching over. Secondly, he needed to see that God cannot lie. He's given you a task. Titus, you have eternal life. 
Titus, you have been called by God. Look at how he worked in my life, meaning Paul. He called me to preach the gospel so that those that would be chosen would hear and get saved and walk with God. You're called to do the same thing, Titus. Go do it. God will do his work. He cannot lie. For you and I, it's the same thing. We are his witnesses, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. We are to be a shining light in the midst of a crooked and perverse world. We are to preach or proclaim the gospel so that others might come to Christ. That's how you came to Christ. And God has chosen to use the methodology of the preaching of the gospel. That's why I don't preach philosophy. Don't preach the world's wisdom. Preach the wisdom of God, which is foolishness to man. But it is through that mechanism, it is through that means that God will work in the hearts to draw others. Be encouraged to continue on because we're serving a sovereign God. We're serving a God that cannot lie, and we're serving a God that brings peace to the soul, which is really what man needs. Not just peace on the outside, not just peace with their relatives, not just peace within the household, not just peace at work, not just peace in the community or in the states or in the world, but peace in the soul that is able to meet the real need. Our God is the one who brings that peace. And Titus needed to settle down and be brought back to the place of being reminded of his call, being reminded of the God he serves and what God has done in his life. And then Paul will address, beginning in verse 5, why he left him there, and what Titus needs to get back to do. But first focus on God. We need that in our lives. How can you encourage? I thought about this. How can you encourage? How can I encourage maybe ourselves or maybe others who were walking with God and they're not walking with God right now? Or they look around and after a while you get saved and you get into a routine and things become just a ho-hum. Or you've had some trials and have been beaten up and really felt it and you want to quit. And How do you encourage people like that? I think the same way Paul encouraged Titus. First of all, get the focus back on God. Off of the trials. Off of ourselves. Off of the world and things that are temporal and back to who God is, and back to the grace of God in calling us, and back to the sovereign work of God in our lives, and back to our God who cannot lie, which means I can count on a resurrection from the dead. I can count on forgiveness of sins. I can count on him giving me strength for the trials, and that I won't be tempted above that which I am able to bear. And God will give me victory, and I can walk in that life, that resurrected life that Paul talked about in victory. That's how to encourage somebody. Don't just deal with the problem, even in your own life. Call them back to who they're serving and what a great God it is that we have who we are serving. I don't know about you, but when I get back in a focus on who God is, some of those very, very difficult things really become minor and put my heart at peace, knowing I can rest in him. And he's true. And I can depend on him, even when I can't depend on others. Let's close in prayer.
Our Father in God, I thank you and praise you for your grace in working in the life of the Apostle Paul, for the ability that you gave him to be in focus on who you are, on what you called him to do, and why he ran with a purpose, knowing eternal life and knowing people would come to believe. And he boldly preached. And how he encouraged the disciple Titus to carry on. Father, we need that in our lives. We need the encouragement. We need to get our focus back on who you are. And the great joy of knowing you and being called to salvation. And how we can rely on your promises and your word because of who you are and your character. I pray that encourage us in the battles that we have, that we might be victorious, and that you might get all the glory. We pray for those who have not yet come to Christ, who still in their hearts are not at peace with you, who haven't clung to the promises of God. Father, by your grace, as the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached, help them to see that Jesus Christ did bear in his own body on the tree our sin, that, Father, you have accepted that sacrifice, that the Lord Jesus Christ was buried and rose again victoriously, and that one day he is coming back, that he is the one true and only Messiah. Help them come trust in him, that they too might have eternal life. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.